From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We're talking teens. Those years between childhood and adulthood, they've always been full of change. But teens today face even more pressures than previous generations. We just think that everything that around us is ridiculous and easily preventable, but we're kind of letting the world fall to ruin. CPR News kicks off a new series today, Teens Under Stress. Then, does the special report about sexual abuse within the Catholic Church in Colorado go far enough? My big concern is that there are so many victim survivors out there suffering in silence. Plus, sports betting could come to Colorado. Voters will decide in November. What would rollout look like? And a Denver artist inspired by snails? It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Teen years can be tumultuous for all kinds of reasons. You're not quite a kid, not quite an adult. Bodies, friendships, responsibilities with family, work, and school, they're all changing. But teens today are facing pressures that are new. They feel more stressed than previous generations. Why is that? And what can relieve those pressures? Today, Colorado Public Radio kicks off a series, Teens Under Stress. We're talking with parents, educators, and researchers. And most importantly, we're talking with teens. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine is part of the project, and she explains what it's all about. It was dark outside. Hundreds of teens crammed into the entrance of a Douglas County school. They were there for a memorial for a teen killed in a school shooting earlier this year. The kids were sad and angry. And in an instant, all their sadness and anger about that night, about what their lives are like, about the help they're not getting, came out. Mental health! Mental health! Mental health! To me, it was chilling. It was deep anguish. This group of teens demanded action be paid to their frustrations and their grief. I pulled some teens aside. Their stories about the fear of school shootings, the environment in class, the pressure they're under, how they see the world poured out. Here's one girl at the event describing what her depression feels like. It's an illness. It, it's like a little puppeteer and it pulls strings and eventually when... No one talks to you anymore when no one wants to be your friend, when no one wants to see you, when you're starting to fail in grades, when you feel like you're disappointing everyone. Those strings, like, they sort of appear everywhere, and then it just slowly takes over, and then you can't see anything anymore. It's like you're looking through a really narrow tube. And the number of teens struggling is going up. Over the past three years, Colorado's teen suicide rate has gone up 58% the highest jump in the nation. One national survey found 70% of teens say anxiety and depression is a major problem among kids their age. We'll hear from teens in a minute, but first we're going to take the long view with the help of adults who've been working with teens for decades. I occasionally get comments like, how's it any different from when I was a teen? The experts we've talked to say they've seen significant changes in teens they've noticed over time. Diana Rarick is a social-emotional learning specialist at Chatfield High who works with hundreds of teens. They use a vocabulary of anxiety and depression in a way that nobody was using 
10, 15 years ago. Veteran school psychologists like Lori Lauer say what kids talk to them about has changed. So I would say in 84, we talked a lot about death and a lot about divorce and a little bit about addiction. And I think since 84, it's gotten way more complicated. Now, I would say last year, I spent the majority of my time working with kids that were either identified as anxious or suicidal or depressed. The issues may begin as early as elementary school. There are some theories. Kids aren't outside much. Some aren't a minute out of their parents' eyesight. And if they're alone, they're spending lots of time on screens. Counselor Carrie Phillips says they're seeing more speech, motor, and language delays, and delays in how kids process and organize all their senses than ever before. We're seeing this huge amount of kids coming in. They don't have what they used to have at the same age, across the board, including self-regulation, self-management skills, and this like explosion of anxiety and depression all the way down to kindergarten. We have suicide risk assessments we do in kindergarten. As these kids grow into teens, a lot of the main stressors are the same as they've always been, says school emotional support specialist Jamie Brenner. Problems in school, problems with friends, problems at home. But the number and intensity of pressures has amplified. Counselor Laura Oliver says the issue is huge and complex. Is it test anxiety? Is it social anxiety? Is it generational anxiety? Many counselors say it's the layering of multiple stressors on top of one another that has put some teens at the breaking point. They say it also comes down to the way we're living, what happens at school, the way kids are spending their time, the change in parenting, and the enormous expectations placed on teens in a hyper-competitive culture. All that can be destructive. They are completely overwhelmed by everything. High school English teacher John Dixon. Their entire system, like their nervous system and their physical and mental capacity is overwhelmed. They just literally cannot take any more, process any more, do any more. He says it's important to note many teens are doing fine, but increasing numbers are struggling. Now let's turn to teens. When we talk to them, they say the pressure to perform and conform is just way too high. It's just the environment that we're in socially. Everyone everyone has the same expectations of them, and everyone gives themselves those expectations that are put upon them by their parents. Parents just drill it in our heads as we're kids. It's like, oh, got to save for college. Oh, got to do... Like, when you're in elementary school, oh, got to start saving for college. Got to... Like where do you want to go to college? What do you want to do with your life? Like, it's like... It's like, I don't know. (laughs) There's also immense social pressure to be popular online, to look a certain way. I feel pressure every day. Every day I go to school, every day I go to Target, I feel pressure. I feel like people are judging me just by walking past them. I will actually take pictures just so that I can post them on my Snapchat and people can swipe up and then I can feel better about myself. Other teens are struggling mentally because of what happens at school or home. My attendance isn't very good at all because I hate going to school because instead of going there to learn and have a relationship with my teachers like I would prefer, I'm going there um, to be called a whore. For other teens, including undocumented teens, it's the political culture. I feel very out of place. I don't feel like I belong here. But I also don't want to go back to like my origins because I know I won't be able to make it there either, you know. It's also the historic moment of time teens are in, being told that humanity has 12 years to prevent a rise in world temperatures or civilization won't be sustainable by centuries end. There's school shootings and a feeling of uncertainty about the future and where they fit in. 
We just think that everything around us is ridiculous and easily preventable, but we're kind of letting the world fall to ruin. So a lot of us have just given up hope. The good news is anxiety and depression are treatable. There are things schools, families, and teens themselves are doing to alleviate the pressure. Whenever I feel pressure, I try to stay calm and stay positive. This uh, club we're looking at is a place where, like, kids could go and find strength. because It's amazing I, to I me. I'll look back at journal entries from a year ago, and I can't even recognize the person who was writing that. Jenny Brundine is CPR's education reporter and a part of CPR's new series, Teens Under Stress. She joins me in the studio. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Avery. CPR health reporter John Daly is also reporting for the series. Hi, John. Hi, Avery. Jenny, you've taken an interesting approach to keeping up with some of your teen sources. You're asking them to keep audio diaries. Tell me a little about that. Yes, some of them are doing that. Uh, I have two girls who've really come through on the audio diaries, and you can hear it in the sound of their voices, it's very distinct from a one-on-one traditional interview. It feels like a diary. It's really intimate and raw and very real. One girl in particular has used her diary as a way to help her process what is happening to her mentally as she goes through her anxiety and depression on her own. And both of them have said that it's been really helpful way to process what they're feeling and to actually know that there's somebody on the other end of the line listening, which I guess would be me. And that is kind of a both powerful and sad statement because so many kids are really struggling on their own. You can also hear it over time in the quality of their voice. So on a good day, their voice is really strong. On a bad day, when they're overthinking things or maybe they cry easily or when they've taken medication, you can hear the difference in their voice. And you don't get that in a half an hour sit down interview with somebody. And I want to get to that. I wonder if there are some moments that a teen has shared with you through these diaries that stand out to you as particularly poignant and maybe something that wouldn't have come out of a traditional sit down interview. Yeah. In this little bit of diary we're playing from a girl, uh, she's just had two friends move away and she's really feeling the pressure of school. It just feels to me that no matter what we go through, it doesn't matter as long as you show up in class and you stay in class and you do well in class. Nothing else matters. They don't even ask how you are. Above all, we're we're people and we feel things. We go through and. He should at least cut us some slack. So those are those audio diaries. John, you report on health for CPR. Tell me about how health and teen stress are linked. Well, you know, I think we heard a lot in the voices that we've been listening to this morning so far. You know, we know that stress is extremely common among teens. They often feel unhealthy levels of stress, especially during the school year. School and the decision about what to do after high school are big stressors for some. Social interactions, conflicts with peers or parents can be stressful. And we know stress causes teens to experience health problems. That's symptoms like feeling nervous, anxious, tired, procrastinating, having negative thoughts, sleeping problems, changes in eating habits, all that. Chronic stress can cause anxiety, high blood pressure, and a weakened immune system, and it can contribute to diseases like depression, obesity, and heart disease. But, you know, stress is a part of life. It can be a good thing. It's what pushes you to get that big paper done or, you know, meet your deadline with a script. And we know a lot of Colorado teens struggle to manage stress, 
And that failure to manage that struggle can cause big problems, big mental health problems. And that shows up in the data about teen anxiety, depression, suicide rates, et cetera. John and Jenny, thank you for being here. You bet. Thank you. John Daly is CPR's health reporter, and Jenny Brundine covers education. They're both a part of CPR's new series, Teens Under Stress. In the coming months, CPR will explore stories about the pressures teens face. Up next in the series, Jenny Brundine profiles teen cell phone use. That's on Tuesday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 33 states have signed on to this grand experiment in public health called medical marijuana something pharmacies can't carry and doctors can't talk to their patients about. So it ends up looking a lot like any other retail business. But here's the rub. There's not a lot of money to be made on medical marijuana anymore. So where does that leave patients who are on the medical marijuana registry? Find out on the season finale of On Something wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. And I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado's attorney general and the Catholic archbishop have said they'll do more to help people sexually abused as children by priests. Their promise came after a report released Wednesday found at least 166 children were likely assaulted by priests here in the last 70 years, and that it took decades for the church to intervene, if it did at all. Attorney General Phil Weiser called the victim's suffering unimaginable, And here's Denver Archbishop Samuel Aquila. This horrible history saddens my heart and is something we vow to never repeat. My sincere hope is that this report provides some small measure of justice and healing. Well, does it? We're going to put that question to Jeb Barrett of SNAP Colorado, the survivor's network of those abused by priests. Jeb, thank you for being with us. And thank you for having me. As SNAP director, as a survivor of abuse yourself, you were abused by a priest at age 17. This was in Montana. I'm wondering what your initial response is to this report. It reveals more than I expected, I will say that, about the culture that we're concerned about. I'm not so concerned about what happened to me 65 years ago or 70 years ago. I'm concerned about what's happening now and what's happening in the future, and that we have an institution who has covered this up, has not reported, and we still, even in the report, don't know that it's really exhaustive, that it's probably just the tip of the iceberg of the the amount of abuse there's been, the amount of denial, and the amount of cover-up. What this report reveals is that it sometimes took decades for the church to make any change or serious response to allegations that a member of clergy was abusing children. Exactly. This reveals more than you expected. Just expound on that for me. Well, he reveals more about the limitations of what they could find out from diocesan records because the the records weren't always that carefully done and there were not really careful investigations. He does not know what files may have been removed, what things may not have been reported, what sort of things have been destroyed. Let me say that he, in this case, we're talking about the lead investigator in this inquiry. That's Bob Troyer, the former U.S. attorney. And I'll just read briefly uh, from the report. Arguably, the most urgent question asked of our work is this. Are there 
Colorado priests currently in ministry who have been credibly accused of sexually abusing children? The direct answer is only partially satisfying. We know of none, but we also know we cannot be positive there are none. So you think this is just the tip of the iceberg. By that, do you mean that the numbers you suspect of those abused as children by priests in Colorado, uh, that that number is higher than 166. Oh, absolutely. What do you base that assertion well, on? Well, when we look at the picture in other dioceses of how many abuses reports there have been for the population and bring it down to Colorado, it's going to show thousands of, of victims. And my big concern is that there are so many victim survivors out there suffering in silence because they don't know that they can be believed someplace, that there is any form of justice available, and that the church would not once more violate and abuse them. Do you think that the release of this report, the opening of compensation for victims, will draw more people out of the secrecy? As long as people are made aware of the the compensation fund, as long as they're aware of the reporting link on the attorney general's website, we will have more people report. Uh, the report makes several recommendations, and I, I just want to say that the archbishop has promised the church will follow all of those. What would your suggestion be, and is it covered in this report? I would ask for the church to do the sort of thing advocacy groups are attempting to do, and that is to reach out to victims, find them, so that we can begin to expose the culture that has allowed this to happen. You brought up the compensation fund, because that is a very important aspect in a strategy that is set up and used across the country. It is the way that the church is doing its best to siphon off the victim survivors who are supportive of statute limitations reform and so forth, which would allow them to actually sue the church. That the idea is if you take compensation, I just want to be very clear, if you take compensation, you agree not to sue. You think that's unjust? I think the reason for it is unjust. I want to say that we can hear your emotional support animal in the studio. What's her name? That is Gypsy. This is Gypsy. All yeah. right. And uh, I'm probably her emotional support animal also. <laughs> in, in a strange she's, environment like this studio. I going through right now. One of the fundamental things the independent investigators team found was that the church has intertwined its investigations and the help it provides to victims. For instance, when someone alleges they've been sexually assaulted by a priest, they are asked to meet with church officials at the archdiocese headquarters, and they're interviewed by a big team that includes church lawyers. From a victim's point of view, tell us uh, why that might be a complicated, a difficult, or just a wrong practice. Oh, that's one of the most intimidating things they could possibly do. And I know from people who have reported and gone to those things how difficult it is and that the, really the experience is that they're being devalued and questioned. And I would never have a victim go by herself or himself without support and hopefully an attorney. 
While the report itself said there's no guarantee that this hasn't continued, uh, and you know it made big recommendations to change church practices, the archbishop also said, quoting here, uh, this report offers us evidence that shows our Catholic parishes and schools are as safe as any environment in society. And, and he, what he points to is the fact that this type of abuse goes on in the Boy Scouts and in schools and at colleges. Uh, do you believe that the church is as safe as other institutions that care for children? I can't believe that. I can't believe that because there's such a long history of denying and hiding and protecting predators and not reporting to civil authorities abuse that is reported to them. It is a culture, it's a hypocritical culture that tells us that these men and women are celibate. And that doesn't mean just with children. We have a huge problem that is not addressed in this, and I believe uh, Bob Troyer brings that up in his report, that it does not address the sexual assault of adults. And that is still a problem, and it has been universally for generations. You think that the culture of celibacy creates some perverse outcomes? It leads us to believe that we can leave our children with this priest or this nun, let them go on an outing, go to camp with them, and that they'll never touch them. But that is not the truth. Just five Colorado priests apparently sexually abused 102 of the 166 children identified in this report. Does that surprise you that a small number of clergy were responsible for the bulk of the cases verified? No, it doesn't surprise me. Because in our studies in the Survivors Network, we have seen that the majority are serial offenders because they're not prosecuted in any way. They are moved around when there's a report and they go to a new field with more children to violate. Are you pleased that there was this independent inquiry? I know that's something that SNAP has been calling for for some time. What we have is, I think, a great gift to Colorado that we're getting the kind of information that we need to start a very long journey toward total accountability and transparency in the protection of kids. How about healing? Healing. Is um, this a part of healing? Oh, my. You realize that the report, as wonderful as it is, does re-traumatize all of us. Hmm. The healing is, is, a, is a daily and a life It's not so. It's not so cut and dried. It's not. It, it, the healing is a lifelong process, mm -hmm. and for some of us, it's a daily thing, especially when we're trying to support others. But thank goodness for the Me Too movement, and say oh, it happened to me, and another one comes in there and say, so I'm not embarrassed to talk about the fact that somebody unzipped my trousers and pulled my, you know, did things to me, because I was an innocent child. Chip, thank you for being with us. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having us. This is so important. Jeb Barrett leads SNAP in Colorado, the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. 
to bear its claim that compensation is a strategy for the church to evade lawsuits, Denver Archdiocese spokesman Mark Haas says, Our intentions are to promote healing. It is not a strategy. It's an option that is hopefully easy to navigate. End quote. Avery, back to you. Sports betting is on the November ballot. Proposition DD would be a major expansion of gambling in Colorado that's either exciting or frightening, depending on your point of view. CPR business reporter Ben Marcus explains the stakes. There are few experiences as unsettling in Colorado as driving into Blackhawk, where 20-story hotel towers seem to suddenly rise out of the mountain. A little piece of Las Vegas, an hour's drive from Denver. You know, we call it mountain chic, Ben. We're building a mountain chic resort here. That's David Farahi. He runs Monarch Casino. Business has been, let's be honest, not great up here. There's competition from Vegas. There's a younger generation not interested in slots. But sports gambling could be a bit of a boost that the casinos need if voters approve the tax on their ballot. Without that tax, the state will cancel legalized sports betting before it even starts. This all started last year when the U.S. Supreme Court gave states permission to start sports gambling if they wanted. Democratic lawmaker Alec Garnett at first thought this was a slam dunk. The black market exists. A lot of people sports bet. Um, The Supreme Court kicks out the prohibition on states from legalizing it. States across the country are doing it. So it's like, oh, yeah, no brainer. And then you're like, oh, it's Colorado and, and nothing's easy in Colorado. Everyone wanted a piece of the action. The infighting even threatened to scuttle the bill. But in the end, Colorado's 33 mountain casinos were the big winners, getting exclusive rights to set up physical sports books and run online betting sites. And that last part is key. No having to drive to Blackhawk to place a bet, says Farahi. Coloradans will be able to download an app, fund the app from anywhere within the state, and place a bet from anywhere within the state. Though Farahi would like it if you drive up to his casino, too. The other winner, should voters approve sports gambling, is water. The new tax on casino profits will start to fund some water conservation projects in Colorado. Garnett says the idea was first proposed after he tweeted last year that he'd sponsor a bill on sports gambling. All of a sudden, I got a few people reaching out to me from the Environmental Defense Fund, from other conservation groups, saying we want to sit down to talk about sports betting, and I'm like, gosh, what in the world? How does this all work? It turned out to be a smart political move because water has bipartisan support in Colorado. But not everyone thinks this is a great idea. Jeff Hunt with the socially conservative Centennial Institute says gambling, aside from being a sin, hits poor people the hardest. Because the house always wins, uh, it disproportionately harms them because it's tougher for them to recover. Hunt acknowledged there's a strong libertarian streak in Colorado's Republican Party. The conservative House Minority Leader, Patrick Neville, is a co-sponsor of sports gambling. But in Hunt's view, legalizing sports gambling in Colorado has nothing to do with freedom, and it's likely to push many into new addictions, though there will be some money for treatment. Hunt is the closest thing to an organized opponent to Proposition TD, and he has zero dollars to fight it. Proponents, from conservation groups to casinos, have poured about a million dollars into the campaign. Yet, Hunt is still hopeful. David took on Goliath. You know, we've seen stranger things, so we could be victorious on DD, too. (laughs) And Goliath is spending big on TV ads. A sports betting tax that only casinos pay. DD's a win for Colorado's water. Vote yes on DD. The campaign is really stressing that casinos will pay the tax, not you. 
because the ballot language is a little confusing. Side note, these ads are funded in large part by a mobile betting site called FanDuel. Governor Jared Polis, who signed the legislation authorizing the November vote, listed a small ownership stake in FanDuel. That's according to financial disclosures he filed when he was in Congress last year. His spokesman wasn't sure if Polis still owned a $1,000 piece of the company. Now let's get back to Monarch Casino and Blackhawk. Farahi says should Proposition DD pass, the ads won't end. Soon, he says, casinos will be carpet bombing the airwaves. You're right. There's going to be a big fight uh, to get market share at the beginning. Sadly for sports betting fans, if DD passes, the state won't allow the first bets until after the Super Bowl. But by May 1st, you can place a futures bet that the Broncos will win the 2021 Super Bowl. But that would be a bold choice. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. As we just heard, if Proposition DD passes, watching the Broncos, Buffs, or any of your favorite sports teams may soon be about more than just wins or losses. Coloradans would be able to wager on a variety of outcomes. How many points were scored in a football game? How many strikeouts did a pitcher get in a baseball game? Jay Cornegay is the vice president of operations at the Westgate Superbook in Las Vegas and a graduate of Colorado State University. He joins us from Nevada. Jay, welcome to the program. Good morning, Avery. How are you? Doing well, thank you. If Proposition DD passes, Colorado joins a number of states, nine currently, that would allow sports betting. In Nevada, where you are, sports betting is a $2 billion a year industry. What does that pretend for Colorado? I think it certainly is going to give uh, the people of Colorado another entertainment option. Uh, We've we've, uh, enjoyed it out here in Nevada for 40 plus years now. And you know, there, certainly there's there's many benefits and there's also some uh, concerns that you also want to address, whether it's problem gambling or any type of addictions, which we, we fund and support as well. But uh, overall, the, the entertainment value is just tremendous and, and people really enjoy it, as we've seen in other jurisdictions as the, the expansion continues across the country. And how big a figure will that be financially? Well, it, it's uh, and it's all based off your tax rates and, and your and how you're going to propose that. I believe uh, Colorado's looking at a 10% tax rate that the operators will pay, and I understand that is going to um, the water funding uh, projects uh, that <clears throat> that it's going to address. Um, and in Nevada, you're probably looking at just about five million dollars. Um, in Nevada and, or in uh, Nevada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nevada is your your price. I'm just from sports, just from sports gambling. Now you got to understand that when when you you mentioned earlier that uh, it was a two billion dollar uh, industry. Yes, that's that's how much we handle. That's not what revenue we bring in. Gotcha. And we have seen in confusion on those numbers, you know, across the country over the last year and a half as people you know do. Um, I, I guess they misunderstand some of the numbers that are thrown out there. Uh, the two billion dollar industry that we have here in Nevada is what we handle on sports gambling, uh, but the the revenue number is uh, approximately about five million dollars annually. Gotcha. So that's good to clarify. Marijuana sales here are about twenty million dollars a month, and recently just passed the one billion mark in total since being legalized in twenty fourteen this year. 
When it comes to sports betting, local interests said it could generate about $300 million in revenue, but the fiscal note in the state legislature says revenues of anywhere from 6 to $11 million in the first two years are more accurate. But it sounds like you're saying sports betting is going to blow those figures out of the water. Well, I think that the handle number, uh, the, you know, the number of dollars of people that are, are you know, risking or betting with, um, you know, I would I would probably just based off of population numbers, you look at the population numbers in Nevada, uh, it, it's it's just probably around two and a half million uh, residents here. Um, as far as Colorado, uh, I believe you guys are right around five or six million uh, in the state of Colorado. So if you if you were to do the math, you, you would probably think that, you know, you're going to probably double whatever uh, the Nevada you know, Nevadans do with sports gambling. I think that would be an accurate number to go by. Now, as we said, sports betting, it's currently available in nine states, and obviously other states like Colorado are interested. Is there any sense at all that Vegas could lose its status as the place to be when it comes to gambling and sports betting? <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was a hot topic uh, prior to uh, PASPA being overturned last May. And, um, you know, we... We had the same concerns in Nevada as gambling itself, whether it were slots or table games, uh, you know, expanded through throughout uh, different uh, states and different jurisdictions. Um, But it really it it didn't hurt us uh, at all. It actually uh, enticed uh, uh, people to eventually make a trip out to Las Vegas. Now, you got to go back to some of the studies that have been done. surrounding sports gambling. Um, back in the, uh, oh, 12, 10 years ago, uh, the Bush administration uh, put together a, a gaming commission and to do a study on sports gambling to just see how many people were participating in it. And the numbers that they came with came up with um, said that 98.5% of everything that's bet on sports in this country takes place outside of Nevada. So what what that indicated was that people were were betting on sports, um, but they were using illegal channels to do so, whether it's you know going offshore or betting with their local bookie. It was taking place. So the the argument was that you know it's already happening. It's it's best to have it in a regulated, controlled environment rather than you know on the streets or in, you know in, in dark alleys. We've always said that transparency is is the key to any type of gambling. We want to know who's making the bets. We want to know who these people are. And if we do have to investigate anything, it's, you know, we have the information to do so. Um, So, and and that's exactly what has taken place in in Nevada. We, We work in a very highly regulated environment here in Nevada. Gotcha. So that's an argument for making it legal. I do wonder if people in Colorado may be more socially conservative than betters in Las Vegas and Nevada. We heard from Jeff Hunt of the Centennial Institute talk about the potential impacts on the poor. Is this going to be a thing where farmers in rural Colorado are maybe more worried about the point spread than his or her crop? You know, I've heard that over the years and we just haven't we haven't seen that Um, over I've been running a sports book here in Nevada for just over 30 years, and we still have the fan base. I mean, people are more concerned about their their, their team than they're actually uh, winning the bet. Now, 
you know, putting $20 or $50 on a game certainly is going to, to change the, the one's perspective on that game. But it's usually, uh, you know, a game that they probably wouldn't have any interest at all. But if you talk, let's say, tonight's game between the Redskins and the Vikings, I mean, there's a lot of Bronco fans that could care less about that game. But, you know, you put $20 on it or $50 on it, you know, it all of a sudden you have some interest, you know. And, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about people that it's either side A or side B. People win almost half the time. It's it, it's it's really the entertainment value on sports gambling is is tremendous. It, you know, you could put five dollars, ten dollars down, and really enjoy something that you would otherwise wouldn't have any interest in it. And then going beyond the entertainment value and also just speaking to those concerns that it could potentially impact people, especially who are poor. Jeff Hunt also said that the house always wins when it comes to gambling. It's probably how you're able to make a living. If people in Vegas can't beat the odds, how could that happen in Colorado? Well, you know, the you know the house always wins, you know, possibly in the long run. But, you know, you, when you look at sports gambling, it's really a low hold percentage. Uh, something like, you know, around 5% is what uh, the state is looking at in Nevada. Uh, and that's that, those are, you know, very educated players that have been around for a long time. In fact, most of the sharp sports bettors, you know, live in, in Las Vegas or Nevada. Um, and, and it's it's a it, it's a percentage that doesn't compare to other sorts of, of gambling. Now, I have seen over the years, trust me, that there's plenty of people that win. There's the, there's that. The sports books don't win every single, uh, you know, day or every single weekend. You know, the public ha- have their days. And uh, it, it's, uh, you know, the, with the saying the house always wins, possibly in the long run. But it's such a low percentage that uh, people are able to enjoy, you know, um, this sort of gambling without, uh, you know, many concerns of addiction or you know, being bankrupt or, or, or those type of concerns. This also makes me think about areas like regulation. You have a background here in this state. Have officials in Colorado reached out to you to discuss how this should work? No, they, they haven't, which uh, I would certainly welcome that. Um, we have given uh, tours in, uh, uh, with many different gaming commissions. I, I just gave a tour to the Washington State uh, Gaming Commission the uh, the other day, and they everyone seems to have the same reaction. They didn't realize how regulated and controlled we are, um, you know, and all the the control measures that are in place in, in running a sports book. You know, I understand people think, oh, it's Las Vegas, anything goes, but that's not true at all. Uh, we even have our own audit department uh, that audits us. On, on both sides of the counter, audits everything that we do and make sure that all our, you know, T's are crossed or I's are dotted. And they also look at the other side of the counter of who's placing these bets. If anybody's placing any type of significant money, and it could be as little as, you know, $500, you know, we need to know who the, that person is. Uh, we, need, we need to, if, if needed, we can do a background check to make sure that his source or funds are matching the type of play that he's giving us. So, there's a lot of control measures that uh, that we we use on a daily basis, and if those people of the game or Colorado Gaming Commission ever wanted to come out, I would certainly welcome them and give them the same tour as I've done with other uh, gaming commissions across the country. Jay, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your perspective. Thanks, Amy.
Jay Cornegay is the vice president of operations of the Westgate Superbook in Las Vegas. He joined us to discuss sports betting and what it might look like in Colorado should Proposition DD pass in next month's election. If sports gambling became legal in Colorado, people would be able to make bets on their favorite teams beginning in May. Nature was an endless source of inspiration for French Impressionist Claude Monet. Nature is also what drives the creativity of Denver visual artist Lori Links Murphy. She's particularly fascinated with insects and snails. You'll see this work and actual live snails at the Denver Art Museum Friday for the museum's monthly series called Untitled Final Fridays. It features local artist creating new works and experiences based on the museum's current exhibitions. Lori, welcome. Hi, how are you? Doing well, thanks. First of all, how did you convince the museum to let you bring in live snails? That isn't my job, luckily. And actually, it's the second time that the Denver Art Museum has let me bring in snails. But this time, they're letting me actually (laughs) take them out of their container, which is big. Um, The conservators have to approve everything we do. And luckily, the artist coordinator, Sarah Rocket, who is amazing, takes care of all that. And I don't have to fight for anything. Okay, so you create drawings from those snails, a sort of documentation of their slimy trails as they move around. I understand you have some rules for yourself when you created those. What are your rules? Yeah, I mean, since they're sort of collaborating with me, I mean, I guess a sort of, you know, unwilling collaboration, but all they have to do is walk around. uh, I don't let myself make choices for them. So I can put them on the paper and I can make that choice. And then when they walk off the paper, I can move them again. But like, otherwise, I leave them alone and let them do what they're going to do. Oh, fascinating. So it's this question of who has agency in your snail collaborators. Exactly. Where did the idea come from to create these works? Um, You know, when I was in grad school, I was working on making these sort of sculptures that approximated nature. And I was really fortunate to study with the artist Anne Hamilton, who's just, you know, an amazing person and a MacArthur Genius winner. And she uh, came into my studio and she's like, why don't you just work directly with nature? And it was like somebody smacked me in the head. And I'd been studying colony collapse disorder in bees and and met a beekeeper that was an undergrad at the time who'd been um, a master beekeeper at the Ohio State Bee Extension. And so, yeah, I, I said, will you help me keep a beehive and let's figure this out? And then two years of failure later, I had something that kind of approximated art. <laughs> oh, wow. So you've been collaborating with all sorts of natural Art, uh, that's really fascinating. So you'll have one of these drawings at the museum on Friday. It's 24 feet long. Yeah. People can interact with it. Is that right? Yeah. So we were trying to figure out a way to like, you know, you can't really for untitled hang things on the wall of the museum because obviously the shows are up. And so we were thinking, well, if we put light behind this, one of the things that really fascinates me and one of the reasons that I was chosen for this untitled with both Monet and the light show is that a lot of my work involves shadow. And, you know, I sort of think about Plato's allegory of the cave as kind of my starting point with that. And we thought it'd be cool to hang it up with lights behind it and people can trace it and then take little pieces of it home. So it's kind of this experience where it's like a second iteration of collaboration with the viewing public. And hopefully it works. We haven't tried it yet. <laughs> now, you've already brought up your honeybees. Um, will you describe the works that you create with those beehives? Well, it's always a little different because each hive of bees is different. So I have to sort of learn their ways. And it's it's always a, a, my work is really predicated on failure. It's a lot of trial and error. 
And um, I basically make sculptures out of wax and sticks and objects and put them in the hive. And the bees will create with them. And there's certain things that I can control and manipulate. Um, I can change the color. I can change the size of the cell or the shape of the cell sometimes by manipulating the wax. But mostly uh, it's a bit of a surprise what I pull out. You know, sometimes it's art, sometimes it isn't. And how do you create something like that, especially with all those bees buzzing around? I mean, they do the work themselves in the hive. So I make the thing put it in the hive. I'm actually quite allergic to bee stings, which is what led to the snails because I stopped working with them for seven years. And luckily my ex-husband said at one point, I'm interested in learning to keep bees. Will you help me? And I'm like, I won't only help you. I will like buy the bees and build the hive and we'll do this. And it's been a fantastic collaboration so far. It's been a lot of fun. Now, I understand that you had a discovery during this process that wasn't really of the artistic kind. Is that right? Uh... I don't know. <laughs> um, well, I understand. So you have all these delicate wax sculptures and that these mostly remain intact. But from 2010, you actually you presented your research on honeybees and how they create. Yeah, I mean, I, I did, you know, write a thesis uh, in grad school and, you know, it was required to be eight pages long and wound up being 82 because that's kind of how I roll. But really, my work is very research driven. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I was working with the bees and the snails and then I've also been interested in bark beetles because I'm in Colorado. So obviously we're surrounded. And in April this year, uh, some research came out about insect extinction and what's happening. And it's very alarming. So I spent the summer kind of doing this research and suddenly I understood what I was doing in a new way and how all of these things related to each other. Gotcha. So there's this really intersection between art and research, scientific research yeah. as well. I've always been driven by like concerns about climate change and environmentalism. So it's always good when what I'm doing is sort of confirmed and yet at the same time tragic and sad. And you're actually drawing on two current Denver Art Museum exhibits and the huge Monet show, which opened this week and an exhibit called The Light Show. Drawing on The Light Show, you've worked with other artists to create collaborative performance pieces around a work in the museum's collection that you saw as a kid during school field trips. Yeah. What will that be? Uh, so I, I really have had a lot of experiences over the years with Lucas Samaris's uh, Corridor Number 2, which is a mirrored tunnel that you can walk through. And I was really inspired in walking through the light show by that and um, just all of the interaction of light and shadow that really fills my work, too. And so I'm working with um, Kim Olsen's Sweet Edge dance troupe, uh, Chris Bagley, who I don't even he's another artist, but I don't even know how to describe him except as a magician. And then Harmony Rose from the Milk Blossoms, and they will be. Uh, working with me to create this dance performance that I think is going to be pretty stellar and amazing, I hope. I'm making the costumes. I'm still working on the costumes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that will be so exciting to see. The obvious commonality that you have with Monet, it's this love for nature. What other aspects of his work are you drawn to? Are there other similarities there? I mean, light, absolutely. You know, I think that what Monet's doing is all about light and all about the interplay of the atmosphere with color. And I think that, you know, that comes into my work quite a bit, too. And you see this kind of work, like you said, as a collaborator with nature. It's more than just documentation. Um, in a Q&A with the museum, you say, quote, I'm trying to evoke in people a sense of wonder at the natural world and a sense of biophilia, an intense love of nature in order to awaken them to what we stand to lose. How can art do that? 
You know, I'm a big believer that art changes the world by changing one person at a time. And one of the things that really touched me, I recently had a show called We Were Here at Maywin Fine Art and Recreative Denver on Santa Fe Drive. And people kept coming up to me and telling me that the show made them cry. And I was like, wow, because I spent the whole summer crying over this research and being sad mm. and then going out in my garden and counting the species of bees I could see in my garden just as like a reassurance. And to know that it like reached people and touched them and made them aware of this, you know, I feel like. I have felt like Greta Thunberg since I was her age. And this entire time, I've been trying to get the kind of traction that she got in such a short time in getting people to care. And we're at this moment now where it's a real tipping point. We need to care right now. There's no more time to waste. And so I really feel like this is what I have to contribute to the world as an artist and as an activist is to try to raise awareness and try to educate people. And that's really my mission in creating work that a lot of artists are driven just by aesthetics, but I have this extra layer of what I care about and what I'm doing. Lori, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Denver artist Lori Links Murphy. She's the featured artist during the Denver Art Museum's monthly Untitled Final Fridays series. You can see her work at the museum this Friday. It's responding to two of the museum's current exhibitions, including that massive Monet show. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. CPR News.